of us appreciate having chunks of our day-to-day existence running on autopilot. It's a good thing not to have to think about which aisle in your supermarket has the oatmeal or which branch of your county library has the best collection of books on CD. You don't have to think about this stuff. You just know it because, well, because this is your life. But lives aren't carved in stone. Whether you like surprises or not, you get them. And often they make you sit up and notice that life isn't really a 24-7 autopilot proposition. What happened to me in San Francisco years ago was one of those surprises. I was on vacation, so yeah, I was looking for adventure, but not necessarily the turn-your-life-upside-down variety. And yet, within a couple of days of meeting David, we were both crazy in love and planning our future together. Nine months later, we were married and living in San Francisco, where I knew no one except David and the dog I brought with me from upstate New York. Left behind were my family, my friends, the wonderful school where I taught, my adorable fourth graders, the cool old house I lived in, my enormous garden, the forested paths for escaping to when I needed to be alone, and pretty much everything else that was nothing like California. Did I regret my impulsive choice to marry a guy I met on vacation? Never. But I'd be lying if I didn't admit that the first year was hard. Transitioning from the known to the unknown can be a test of one's creativity, resilience, self-esteem, patience, and endurance. Having too much newness thrown at you at once can definitely leave a person wondering whether they should have taken a few slow, deep breaths and looked more closely before they leaped. But too often by then, you're already up to your neck in the soup. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. Today's show, Did I Bite Off More Than I Can Chew? My guest today is Izzy Rose, author of The Package Deal, my not-so-glamorous transition from single gal to instant mom in which she chronicles the first tumultuous year of her marriage, where she gave up her career, moved to Texas, and became full-time mom to her two stepsons. Izzy Rose is an Emmy Award-winning television producer from the San Francisco Bay Area. She's the creator of Stepmother's Milk, a blog and resource site for the modern-day stepmom with national and international readership. She's appeared countless times on TV and radio programs in San Francisco, Austin, and Memphis, and is a regular contributor to Stepmom Magazine. Welcome to Family Confidential, Izzy. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hey, I feel like I know you after reading this book. The Package Deal, my not-so-glamorous transition from single gal to instant mom, is a pretty honest portrayal of what sounds like a pretty chaotic, in spots, pretty chaotic year that you had. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who've gone through transitions like this who could really use some help, though I'm not sure if the way you you portray it, at least in part, someone would say, whoa, whoa, if that's what's ahead of me, I'm not going there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good to be well-informed, right? I think so. I mean, one of my first questions to you is, if there's some advice someone could have given you at the onset of this that you actually could have listened to that would have helped, tell me what that might have been. 
Well, let's see. I, I had an idea of what step families were like going into this because I am a step kid and I grew up in a step family for 20 or so years before becoming a stepmother. Uh, but nothing really prepares you, uh, I don't think, for the stepmothering role. I think uh, I struggle a lot with feelings of love. Uh, the expectation to uh, really bond with my stepsons immediately. And I think, and I discovered this along the way, and and now I pass this advice on to other stepmothers. It, and it would have been nice if someone would have said, love isn't instant. It's just not going to happen overnight, and that is okay. That doesn't make you a terrible, awful woman. <laughs> And that would have relieved some of the uh, the guilt or some of the insecurity you might have been feeling at that time? I think so. I think as women, we want to make those kind of connections, emotional connections with people, and certainly with children. So I wanted to bond with them right away. And I do over the course of the book, but it was an instant. These were boys that at the time were 10 and 14 years old. And Anyone that's been around teenagers or teenage boys, they could tell you that they're not always the most lovable people. <laughs> that's really true. Um, I'm going to ask you if, you, if you wouldn't mind, to read from page 111 in your book, where you talk about this really eloquently and always with this brute honesty. And I think it, it would be really good for our listeners to hear you setting this stage for this expectation and how that compared to the reality of living with these boys. Sure. When Hank and I first got together, I guess there were many who assumed, or like Hank hoped, that I'd instantly fall in love with his boys too. But that just wasn't the case. I was charmed by the boys right away, and most days, even now, living with them, I was tickled by the things they said and did. But that didn't mean I was going to be first in line to donate a kidney. <laughs> I know this sounds pretty awful, but let's be honest. How many stepmoms love their stepkids at hello? The truth was, I just didn't feel that way about the tall one and the young one yet. And I had to wonder, would I ever? I cared for them a great deal. I was very fond of them. But did I love them? I've long felt that society expects women to feel exaggerated sweetness for anything with a heartbeat, especially children. Like we were all born with an indiscriminate gushing gene. How did this rumor get started? I wanted to know. Children may be easier to love than, say, your office cube mates, but it's not instant. I've always been quick to point out the obvious. Children are just small people, and people aren't always easy to love. But Hank's kids were lovable. I just hadn't fallen yet. Mom, in an effort to encourage me, said she remembered the moment when she started to feel motherly love for my two stepsisters. But it took years for me to have my moment, she said. There were many times when our family was battling, and I'd think, why am I doing this? Am I nuts? I asked myself the same question. Why was I doing this? Well, because I loved Hank and because I knew that eventually I'd probably fall for his kids too. If I hadn't thought my shaky heart would relax, I wouldn't have signed up for the job. Still, I don't think I've had my moment, I told mom, and I felt terribly guilty admitting this. 
It seemed there were some feelings too raw to be expressed out loud. Thanks. I think that really sums it up for a lot of step-parents, moms and dads, where the expectation is that you come into what you call a ready-made family and that there's a place for you. Mm -hmm. And I find it obviously unrealistic, and yet the expectations are really high in everyone's part, especially the person who's coming in. Right. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about what your own experience as a step child growing up came in terms of your bonding with a stepdad and a stepmother. You had it on both sides, didn't you? I did. My parents divorced when I was nine, and they both remarried others when I was 10. My stepmother didn't hang around for very long. She was, she was a, just a small bleep in my history. But my stepfather, uh, I still have today, and he is a huge influence in my life. And I write about this in the package deal. I think I unconsciously, now consciously, took a cue from him. He made a conscious choice to take a back seat. And not meaning that he wasn't involved with me. He was still very present in my life. But he went to my mother early on. She told me this this recently when I was writing the book, that he went to her early on and said, you know, I'm not going to try and be a father to her. She already has a father. My parents stayed living in the same city like a lot of divorced parents do. And he knew that my dad was very much in my life. So he was he just kind of was in the background. And 20 years later, we're very tight. But it was a result of just what he calls a real slow simmer. Mm -hmm. And he felt that eventually, if we were going to become closer, it was just going to be an organic experience. And I really appreciate that now. I think early on, I just thought he was kind of this quiet guy. And there were times when I, I think I felt maybe we were closer or maybe we understood each other better. But I certainly appreciated him not pushing a relationship with me. It sounds to me that ability and willingness to let a relationship simmer slowly comes from a sense of self-confidence that perhaps he had, Mm -hmm. that he would eventually win you over and that you guys would have a healthy relationship that felt good on both sides. I think so. And it's difficult to take that position. Because mm-hmm, you, you want it. I mean, I have to say, Izzy, from reading your book, you sound like someone who, give me a problem, I'm going to solve it. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right in there with your sleeves rolled up. You're an action kind of person. You're a TV producer. And so you're really good at organizing and getting all your ducks lined up in a row and shooting them down if they need to be out of the way. So my sense is that feeling of, okay, here's what I need to do. Let's get at it. Might have been driving you. And please correct me if I'm wrong. No, that, that's a good assessment. And there were certain things I was able to come into the relationship and get my hands dirty right away and start checking things off the list, like setting up house rules and some of the more practical, tangible things. But in terms of emotions, I decided not to push it, but it's hard. There are days when I feel like, God, I wish I felt closer to the boys, or I wish that they felt closer to me. I wish they relied on me a little more. I think we've all kept our distance from each other in a protective way. None of us want to get hurt. We've still bonded. Mm -hmm. 
after I've done a lot of readings over the past few months since the book has come out, and there seems to be uh, what I call like a, a veteran stepmother in every crowd who at the end of my presentation will raise her hand and say, you just got to stick with it. <laughs> I battled endlessly with my stepkids or, you know, we were never close when, when they were teenagers, but, you know, I was just a prominent player in their wedding or we're so close now. And, and I've had women say, you know, you just got to wait 20 or 30 years. <laughs> and it's sort of, uh, it's encouraging. It's also, you know, oh my God, really? Okay. But I know that as a stepkid who is now an adult stepkid with a wonderful step family, I've seen the evolution of it. And it does require, I think, some humility and patience. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think those are wonderful words of advice. It's not always easy to hear that when you're in the middle of something, but it is encouraging to know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And as a family, you guys will get there into the light together. I also, for our listeners, would love for you to set up a little bit of how you got into this situation, because really, you bit off a whole lot of change in <laughs> in marrying a man with children. It wasn't like, okay, I fell in love, and this guy I love and want to be with just happens to have a couple of sons. I can manage that. But there were a, a whole lot of other things that I'm sure contributed to the pressure on you internally and externally to get, again, all those ducks lined up. It was a huge shift. I would love, if you would, to set up for us a little bit what's going on as you made this huge upheaval in your life by choice and what fell by the wayside as a result. Sure. This was three years ago. I was living in San Francisco. Minding your own business, right? <laughs> yeah, minding my own business. I had a great career uh, working for a television station as a TV producer in several stations in the Bay Area. And I had finally felt like I made it. I was in my early 30s and I had my own apartment, which anyone that lives in in the city can tell you is, is quite an accomplishment. <laughs> and I really was enjoying this independent lifestyle. And I was fine with the fact that I was unmarried and didn't have kids at 35. Uh, many of my, my friends had already gone down that road and loved heckling and teasing me about when I was going to get around to it. But I was having a great time um, just taking care of myself. And then, of course, that's when I met and fell in love with Hank. He was a divorced man with two sons. And I realized pretty quickly that this was kind of the new reality for women like myself who had postponed the marriage question until later in life. We put our careers ahead of marriage and promotion before parenting and the dating pool changes. A few years go by and you realize a lot of the available men are hardly single. They come with kids and ex-wife, what I call the package deal. But I felt like, let's give it a shot. You know, I'm a stepkid. How bad can it be? <laughs> so I, I walked into this sort of aware, but naive, more naive than aware. Not long after 
getting engaged, Hank got a job offer. We both work in the television business. He got a job offer to do what he was doing at the CBS station in San Francisco in Austin, Texas. And we had been playing around with the idea of moving only because it was so expensive to live in the Bay Area. And now all of a sudden I have to consider three more people living in the same space as me. Mm -hmm. So there was a career change. So you left San Francisco and went to Austin. You left your job to do that. Yes. You left your apartment. My apartment, (laughs) and I left my family and my friends. And your friends. And I found myself in this foreign country. I mean, I know Texas isn't a country, although many Texans would like it to be. But, you know, I'm a Bay Area girl, and moving to Texas seemed like a really strange, strange thing to do. It was all very foreign to me. So I'm, I'm newly married. I have these kids. I'm in a new city. My career's on hold and I don't know hardly any people and I don't have a support system. This is huge. This is huge. And, and in the book, you talk a bit about a therapist that you hooked up with there who pointed out to you that any one of these are major life changes and you were really stacking them up. Yes. And I'm very intrigued by your insight that you needed support, that you missed having this real world support. And so you turned to the online world to find what you call your online steps. Yes. (laughs) Tell us about that, please. Well, one of the first things, like you mentioned, that I did after moving to Austin was look for a therapist. And I recommend therapy highly to everyone I know, really. But for any stepmother I meet, it's one of the first things I ask them. Do you have a therapist? No? Okay, go get one. (laughs) So I went looking for support for stepmothers specifically. And I couldn't find any. I was stumped, actually. I thought for sure there must be groups of stepmothers. There's groups for everything. And my new therapist in Austin said she hadn't heard of any. So I went looking online. And at the time, this was three years ago, things have changed a lot since then. I can speak to that in a minute. But there wasn't anything that spoke to me. There were some sites here and there, but there wasn't what I expected. When you start digging around, you realize pretty quickly that there are a lot of us. And the latest numbers are that there are 20 million stepmothers in the country today. Whoa. So you would figure there'd be, you know, three or four of us getting together to, for coffee, you know. <laughs> So because I couldn't find anything that spoke to me and I desperately wanted people to relate with, I started stepmothersmilk.com in 2007. And this was an experiment to just reach out and see who was out there. Almost immediately, I started hearing from other women in different parts of the country who mirrored my story in so many ways and were also so hungry for camaraderie and advice and support. This community just started to grow. And since then, there there are so many stepmother blogs. I'm coming across new ones almost every day. And we're a force soon to be reckoned with. That's very encouraging because, as you say, there are so many millions of women who, like you, kind of went in with high expectations of your ability to cope and found that maybe the reality didn't match your abilities because you just were untried in this particular venue. I I did an interview recently for our show with Wednesday Martin, author of Step Monster, and I found it very enlightening for me personally to 
find out that the stepmom's got a really hard road to hoe. <laughs> yes, she's done amazing work for a lot of us. Her book is pretty amazing and enlightening and validating. And what it does is what I hope my book is able to do, too, is just let women feel okay feeling their feelings. I think there is a lot of guilt and shame and confusion around the stepmother role. That's what I hear from women more than anything is the question of roles Mm -hmm. and that being the big question to answer. And I think there isn't any one specific way to be a stepmom. So we're all amateurs. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that you've you've shed a lot of light on what works for you as a new stepmom in the book. What I liked about it is your creativity. For example, you talked about blending some family traditions, which I know people get really anxious about holiday seasons. And when it comes to, we've always done it this way. And you're the new girl on the block. And this is your family and your home as well. That trying to find a balance is not always easy. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you did that first Christmas with the boys and with Hank. Sure. Well, I love Christmas and Christmas is always a big deal with my family. And this was our first Christmas in Texas. I must say, I think I I took on this role with a little more boldness than some others, but That's just the way I did it. No, but it was cool. It was cool because what it said, it validated the importance of it for you and for you to say, this is the way it's going to be. Sure. As stepmothers, you are the newest member to this family that's existed a long time before you came along, but that doesn't mean that you're not significant. Right. And I had to continue to remind myself of that. And because I was older and had been taking care of myself, I was aware of what mattered to me. And I wasn't going to give all that up. I was willing to compromise, but I wasn't willing to just roll over. And so one of the things that first Christmas was I always, you know, I'm from Northern California, the home of the Christmas tree farm. (laughs) And we were going to have a real tree. The boys and Hank, they'd always had a boxed tree. That was just like not going to (laughs) happen. So, (laughs) and little did they know that I'd actually thrown away their boxed tree before we moved to Austin. You said you did it secretly. I did. Well, I just... Honey, where's the tree? Uh, what tree? (laughs) I just couldn't bear to haul that thing down here. So... We went and got a fresh tree. You know, and I talked about why this was important to me and how it was so cool to have the scent of pine in your house. And I I had to sell it. And the boys bought on. So then I had to compromise on some of the things they always did. They always have this really saccharine-laden, syrupy, Sara Lee coffee cake in the morning. And that's their tradition. And Christmas just isn't the same without two or three boxes of this frozen dessert. And so I made it a priority to go find this for them. And we just kind of went back and forth. Actually decorating the tree was one of the hardest things for me. It just became very symbolic that here we are decorating this family tree together and mixing our ornaments. And I think all of us have at least one or two ornaments that we've probably had forever. And we think they're the most beautiful thing ever. And they're probably just as tacky as 
they mean something to us, but not necessarily to others. And I found myself struggling with that. I wanted to put all my ornaments on the tree and not necessarily theirs. And I realized, wow, I'm really insecure about my place in this family and how I mix. I thought it was kind of funny, Izzy, when you were describing it in the book and you say, <laughs> I put all my ornaments at the top so they'd have prominence. Yes. People couldn't miss my ornaments and let their ornaments be at the bottom of the tree. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm very honest about my insecurities. My insecurities in my identity crisis through all and of And it's this. very refreshing. I love that part of the book is that here you are, you know, as they say, warts and all, and you're saying, okay, this is how I'm feeling right now. I know it may sound petty, but this is how I feel. Yes. Well, I think that's healthy. It is. I learned so much about myself that first year of being a stepmom. And I have the boys really to thank for a lot of that. I thought it was also interesting that one of your most treasured Christmas tree ornaments was a ruby slipper. <laughs> and what does Dorothy say as she's clicking her heels together? Mm-hmm. She says, there's no place like home. And home is really where you make it. And you were making a new home for yourself. And I thought it was lovely that your younger stepson, who you refer to as the short one, as opposed to the older one who's called the tall one. Correct. <laughs> um, that the short one noticed this ruby slipper on the tree and go, whoa, where did that come from? Ooh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Lovely symbolism. I loved it. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I have uh, learned a lot about, yeah, what, like what you say, like about family, that it is where you make it. And it's what you make of it, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone recently emailed me and said, I just read your book and I'm having this terrible time in my step family and I just need a few words of advice. It's very flattering when people ask me that, although I al- almost always feel like I have to preface it by saying I'm no expert. I'm just living it like you are. But if you want to make this family work, I said, then you will. Mm. It's not going to necessarily be easy. But not that it's simple, but if you make that decision to make it work, I think you will. You'll figure out how to do that. That's beautiful advice. And I hope that women got it because a lot of what your book is about is your struggles. And then you're coming to an understanding of what you could control in the situation and what you couldn't. I thought it was really interesting when we talk about how big a bite you took off to chew, that it's not just you and Hank and your two stepsons. It's also the whole other group of people that you refer to as the traveling circus. And (laughs) I would love for you to describe this because the truth is when someone marries someone who already has children, there is another cast of characters involved as well and they impact your life and they also can be a predictor in terms of how much of a struggle it might be to establish your own role. Yes. Well, one of the reasons we moved to Austin, Texas was because Hank's ex-wife and her husband and their two kids together, they are part of what I call the traveling circus. The initial plan was that we would all move together. And that's something that they had all done previous to me entering the mix. Every time they had different job opportunities, everyone would pick up and move? Yes. And what makes it even crazier is I didn't say that was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, whoops, that was me. I think it's crazy. (laughs) 
there, we're all in the television business. The TV business is very transitory. People are moving around a lot, getting promoted to different positions or to different stations. And Hank's ex-wife, June, she's a TV anchor. If a good gig comes up, you know, or New York comes calling, you better bet you're going to pack up and go. So they had done this, this traveling around and they had been pretty well established in San Francisco for a time, but they were all getting these internal rumblings that maybe they wanted to move. And then the job opportunity came up for Hank. And so one of the conversations that had to be had was, does this work for everybody? That conversation in June's living room, I describe in the book, and I just remember feeling so awkward and disbelieving that this had become my life so quickly. You know, here I am with three other adults and four kids, and we're trying to figure out where we can all move together somewhere in the country that we all like and where we can all get jobs in the same field. Wow. And I thought, wow, mm-hmm. how did I get here? How is this going to ever work? Did you feel like you got an equal vote in this conversation in June's living room? I think so. I made sure that I checked in with myself before giving the green light and signing on to this, that this was something that I wanted to do. And that ultimately, Hank and I were making decisions for us, Mm -hmm. for our marriage and our family. But I did have that sort of come to Jesus conversation with myself where I had to ask, is this something you want to do? Is there enough in this package for you? Are you willing to make these sacrifices? I decided that I was ready for a move and I was ready for an adventure and I was crazy in love with this man and I wasn't going to pass this up. Of course, several months after that, after I got to Austin, I had many conversations with myself that said, what were you thinking? Mm. (laughs) So so your expectation was... That June and her husband and their family would come to Austin with you. But the reality was something different, wasn't it? The reality is that they did not end up coming. Hank and I came first, and then the boys came second. And then June and the rest of the circus decided to stay in the Bay Area. She had a really hard time finding work here, which was a valid consideration. But that was how I ended up becoming the... 24-7 stepmother to these kids. Hank and I became the sole parental figures for them for that entire first year. Wow. And as you say in the book, this is not what I signed up for. And I really appreciated the way you managed it. I mean, there were times that I'm sure, as you describe the dinners together, (laughs) that you might have been tearing your hair out. And your brilliant solution I thought it was a brilliant solution, was to have this concept of a free dinner night. And I would just love to have you explain that because this would be great for families, ready-made families or not, the idea of a free dinner. Now, please explain it to us. Sure. Well, if anyone that's listening that doesn't know about this, I insist that you implement this immediately. (laughs) Immediately. The, the the basic concept is that you designate one night out of the week uh, for free dinner. And essentially what that means is we're all still going to eat dinner, but the parents are off duty. So the kids can make and eat whatever they want. You have to stick to that rule. 
or at least that's what I do. You can have whatever you want. If you want to eat a container of frosting (laughs) or a jar of jam or just pickles, knock yourself out. As long as you clean up and put the dishes in the dishwasher. Or the jar. (laughs) Or the jar. Put the jar in the recycling bin. Uh, But the idea is that we all get a break. I think the kids love it. You know, it sort of empowers them. And and it's fun. I mean, it's fun for your parents to say, you can have whatever you want. I'm not going to look over your shoulder and I'm not going to comment on the fact that you've just eaten four bowls of cereal. (laughs) Okay, so let me just, I want to understand the logistics of this. Does that mean that not only does everyone fend for themselves, but does it also include the fact that you don't need to all sit down and consume your prey together? That's true. Because, and I write about this, and I know it opens it opens me up for criticism from people who have been sitting down to family dinners for many years now. But as a new stepmother who has gone from quite an independent lifestyle, which included a lot of eating out, mm-hmm. it was a beast uh, of a burden for me to sit down every single night to family meals. It was tough. Was it the making of the meals or the conversation or both or what? I think it was just the sitting down together and talking and in other conversations and I'm talking about boys who don't always communicate that much and don't always have the best hygiene or manners and I just remember having this really sort of surly thought after five or six nights of this was like god what are we going to talk about tonight aren't you all bored with each other (laughs) and realizing oh God, this is what families do. I have a lot of nights ahead of me and I better figure out how to cope with this. And I know I'm not the only one that gets tired of family dinners. At least we were having them. I've heard from a lot of women who read the book who have applauded the fact that I even made a point to sit down and eat with the kids. And that's something we always did growing up. We always had family dinner, and I do think it's important. I think you need a break. Sure, you need a break. All things in moderation, for sure. If it gets to be a chore to anyone, it's cool to take a break. And as you described it in the book, it re-energized you for wanting to reconnect again over dinner the next night. You had a free night off, and, you know, everybody did their own thing. This is fine. I'm all for flexibility and what works, and balance in all things is probably the most healthy approach you could have in life. Yeah, I agree. I think that's true. And that was one of the things I struggled with right away because I didn't know how it all worked. There was a part of me that thought we needed to be together all the time. Mm -hmm. And that that was the responsible, kind thing to do. And I realized pretty quickly that that's not really realistic. And I need my space and they probably need their space too. And that is perfectly acceptable. We're still all individuals. We can all go off and have our alone time and our time to regenerate. And then we can come back together. We don't have to spend every single minute together. And especially as you have said, the age at which you met these children, they're already developmentally moving away from parent peers towards peer group. And to have to insist that you stay together 24-7, you're going to get a lot of resistance. And who needs that? You're dealing with enough changes. Might as well, as your stepfather did, create a a slow simmering relationship rather than a clinging, okay, let's all bond starting now. (laughs) Yes. I think that I'm really glad that I did that. And I think that it's working. 
I'm in it for the long haul. And I try to remember, because I am a stepkid, is that I chose this. And even though I may have been really naive (laughs) walking into it, I did choose it. And they didn't. And I remember how that felt Mm -hmm. is when I was nine and my parents divorced. You know, I wasn't really crazy about the fact that they split up. And everything that happened after that in terms of who my mom married and who my stepsisters were and where the house we moved in together, those weren't my choices. And it all worked out okay. But I try to keep that in mind now. And that's part of what I went through in that first year was realizing that it wasn't all about me. Mm -hmm. Oh, what a discovery. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But realizing that, yeah, I was going through a lot of transitions. And so were they. And so were they. And so was Hank. And so was his ex-wife. We were all experiencing the same situation very differently. I just try to remain empathetic to the boys more than anyone when they're being kind of snarky and and being typical teenage boys that it's probably not personal. You know, their world got rocked around and they're probably trying to just do the best that they can too. Yeah. You know, you make a really good point because, you know, both of my kids are grown up now, but, and I was their biological mom and they were snarky to me too. (laughs) times. So it's a good thing not to take it personally, especially with tweens and teens, because, you know, they're going through their own thing and they'd be nasty to Mother Teresa. Right. I'm wondering now, so how long has it been actually since this first year that you described so eloquently in the book? Well, now we're in year three. Year three. Okay. And can you give us an update about your life in Austin? Sure. Um, things are a lot calmer now than when they were in the beginning. And a lot of that, I think, just has to do with my own my own attitude. I've definitely relaxed, which is good for everybody. <laughs> But we're still here, and we were really enjoying Austin. The oldest is a senior in high school. Whoa. Oh, so another transition coming up then. I know. So we have all of those things to deal with this year. So we're dealing with jobs and college admission and driving and prom, although he says he's not going to prom, but I'm insisting on it. (laughs) How is the short one doing? (laughs) Well, he is actually now living with his mother, and he will be joining us next year. He will be starting high school, and he will be living with us full time. So right now, we just have we just have the older one, and that's a totally different dynamic. Yes. And I think it's a little sad, maybe, that the boys aren't together, but I think they will come back together next year. Mm-hmm. It's given them each a chance to grow into their own individuality, I think. Mm -hmm. The younger one gets to be the older brother now, and Devin, who is the tall one, he gets to just focus on himself. Mm -hmm. As the older brother of three other siblings, this is a completely new experience for him to really just be accountable for himself. And I think that's good. We'll see. And how about you on the professional front, aside from being a writer now? Well, now I get to write full time and Mm -hmm. I have several projects I'm working on and it's exciting. I did not know that when I started Stepmother's Milk that it would become the basis for a book. I had no idea, but I'm thrilled. It's really a dream come true. 
Yeah, I have to say, Izzy, as I read this, I'm thinking, movie, movie, movie. Uh, excellent. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with you. I think that you've done stepmothers and dads a great service here by writing this book, by telling your story. It's encouraging and it's real. And I'm very appreciative of having the opportunity to read it and also to talk to you. My guest has been Izzy Rose. Her book is called The Package Deal, My Not-So-Glamorous Transition from Single Gal to Instant Mom. Izzy, can you tell us before we leave where people might get more information about you and your blog, etc.? Yes, you can find me at izzy-rose.com. You can also find me at stepmothersmilk.com. And I'm on Twitter, stepmothersmilk is my name. So I encourage you to come visit me and say hello. This has been lots of fun. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. To find out more about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest, Rosalind Wiseman, talks about the new revised edition of her New York Times bestseller, Queen Bees and Wannabes. Till then, happy parenting! Mm-hmm.